Well, it's different today, but why, why not? Best day for when we got new chairs and new people. Might as well decorate everything. So I just pray for this week, uh, especially for Vacation Bible School. And uh, particularly, I just know a couple stories of some kids who have who went to a Vacation Bible School when they were, were little, and God, God used that in their lives later on to, to realize that when they were lost, when they needed something, they turned to the church because they remembered the good times that they had. And so you just pray for that. Well, this morning we're going to look at another surprising conversion. Uh, we have looked the past two weeks. We've been considering surprising conversions of the Bible. And uh, we began two weeks ago by looking at the surprising conversion of the rebellious ruler named Manasseh. He was 55 years a, a ruler in Judah, king in Judah, longer than any other king ruled in uh, Judah or Israel before him. And he was more evil than anybody. Anyone who came before him or anyone who came after him, Manasseh was the, the worst of the worst. And, and though the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to all the people, they paid no attention and we read this in Second Chronicles thirty three eleven through thirteen. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the kings of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks, perhaps in his mouth, perhaps in his nose, and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress in a Babylonian prison, he entreated the Lord, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God, and humbled himself before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty, and heard his plea, and brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And Manasseh then spent the rest of his life trying to undo everything that he had done. Try, trying to right all the wrongs that he had made before. Indeed, the, the conversion of Manasseh is a surprising conversion. The wickedest of kings becomes a saint. And last week we looked at the surprising conversion of a wandering woman. This is one who spent her life wandering from man to man, married five times. And she spent her life wandering in sin, living with a man with whom she wasn't married. And wandering perhaps even from the women in the city because one day she was alone in the heat of the day at the well. The women always went out in the morning or in the evening in numbers. And she was estranged from them. And then she happened to meet Jesus. And he told her of her sins and that she was, he was the Messiah. And, and so she went back to her city and told everyone of Jesus. And many in the city of Sychar believed in him because of her witness. And indeed, this woman, the conversion of this woman was a surprising conversion. And you compound that to the fact that she was a Samaritan and she was a woman. Because Jewish men didn't deal with Samaritans, nor did they deal with women. And yet Jesus did. This woman believed became an evangelist to her entire town. Well, this morning we, we turn our attention to the surprising conversions of Jewish priests. I tried to say pious priests to match everything, but Jewish priests is really the best. And that's a, the title of my message this morning is The Surprising Conversion of Jewish Priests. Our, our text comes from one verse, Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. In fact, we're just going to look at the second half of the verse. From Acts chapter 6, verse 7b. So if you've done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles there to Acts chapter 6. They are in the chairs in front of you, page 914. And uh, I've taken the idea of the sermon series from a letter written by, by Jonathan Edwards to a Reverend Dr. Coleman of Boston. Dr. Coleman 
had heard of what had happened in Northampton and had requested of Jonathan Edwards that, that he write his experiences of what took place during the Great Awakening, which occurred about the 1740s. And Edwards, of course, was a pastor in the church of Northampton at the time. He'd seen the Lord pour out His Spirit in a mighty way in his town. He saw many people come to Christ as a result. And Edwards writes about this beginning of the outpouring of God's Spirit with these words. He says this, In April of 1734, there happened a very sudden and awful death of a young man in the bloom of his youth, who, being violently seized with a pleurisy and taken immediately very delirious, died in about two days, which, together with what was preached publicly on that occasion, much affected many young people. This was followed with another death of a young married woman who had been considerably exercised in mind about the salvation of her own soul before she was ill and was in great distress in the beginning of her illness, but seemed to have a satisfying evidences of God's mercy to her before her death. So she died very full of comfort in a most earnest and moving manner, warning and counseling others. This seemed to contribute to render solemn the spirits of many young persons And there began evidently to appear more of a religious concern on the people's minds. In other words, in Northampton, Jonathan Edwards, he was pastoring. The deaths of these two young people just began to stir in the hearts of, of young people religious concern. And soon that concern with the young then spread to the entire town. Edwards continues. He says this. Presently upon this, a great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and the eternal world became universal in all parts of the town and among persons of all degrees and all ages. His description's amazing. He says, the noise amongst the dry bones waxed louder and louder. All other talk but about spiritual and eternal things was soon thrown by. All the conversation in all companies upon all occasions was upon these things only unless so much as was necessary for people carrying on their ordinary secular business, other discourse other than the things of religion would scarcely be tolerated in any company. The minds of people were wonderfully taken off of this world and was treated amongst us as a thing of very little consequence. And they seemed to follow their worldly business more as a part of their duty than from any disposition they had to it. And the temptation now seemed to lie on that other hand, to neglect the worldly affairs too much. And to spend too much time in the immediate exercise of religion. And uh, so you just picture this city. Started with these young people and then going to the city. And and I tell you, the the thing that's encouraged me most is is every week I've gone back to Edwards' work. Just kind of reading it over and thinking about revival and thinking about these conversions and the surprising work of God. Is the fact that this was surprising. Like ordinarily that's not the case. But when the Spirit of God comes and He awakens sinners to their condition, then this is the sort of thing that, that happens in an amazing way. And when the, the revival was at its height, a year after the deaths of these two young people in 1735, um, Edwards writes this, This work to seem, seem to be at its greatest height in this town in the former part of the spring in March and April. And at that time, God's work in the conversion of souls was carried on amongst us in so wonderful a manner that so far as I can judge, it appears to have been the rate of at least four persons in a day or nearly 30 in a week. Take one with another for five or six weeks together. And when God in so remarkable a manner took 
the work into his own hands. There was as much done in a day or two as at ordinary times with all endeavors that men can use and with such a blessing we commonly have as is done in a year. In other words, right? That was sign was so remarkable that God was doing in a day what, what normal labors took so long. So be encouraged in your evangelism and reaching out to people with, with Christ and with His love and with His grace and with the message of, of salvation. If, if they're not coming to Jesus, realize that's, that's normal. But when God pours out His Spirit, you'll see surprising conversions in numbers. And in total, Edward says that this awakening led to the conversion of many hundreds of souls in Northampton. This, according to what Edwards titled his letter to Dr. Coleman, which was really a, a small book, when he, his letter was entitled this, he said it was a, a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton and the neighboring towns and villages of North Hampshire, in New Hampshire, in a letter to the Dr. and Reverend Coleman of Boston. And, and this, this treatise is often... Um, known as a narrative of surprising conversions. And thus the name of our, our sermon series this morning is Surprising Conversions. And, and regarding what took place in Edwards' day, I think it's significant to note the context of, of what happened. Northampton was a small town, uh, a, a, a town of about uh, 200 families. I mean, by contrast, our church is about 40 families. And we live here in Rockford, maybe 50,000 families in our community so it's entirely different church life than, than what we have. Make it further different is his church was the only church in town. And so almost everyone in the town was connected in some way or other with that church. In fact, many people in the town attended that church who were not believers in Jesus. Because, because back then in agricultural Americas, you're, you're spreading out, you've got these small towns, these stable towns, as you're expanding abroad, the church was the main intellectual hub of the day. No television, no radio, no internet, no college professors sponsoring talks. All they had was the pastor of the church who was the, the most uh, educated, smartest, well-read guy in town. We know that's not the case here, right? The, the, the smartest guy was the pastor. And so people w- would come to hear him talk on Sunday and hear this, this weekly intellectual stimulation. And, and so many people even just kind of came just for the, for the event, even though they didn't believe in Jesus. They weren't believers. But they were tolerant of things. And if you know the Church of Edwards, there, historically there's a, a big controversy. What, what got him kicked out of the church was what his, his grandfather, Samuel Stoddard, had established in that very church. Samuel Stoddard, his grandfather, pastored the church for 60 years. And because of the small-town dynamics and because of the, uh, the number of unbelievers around, um, they, they engaged in something called the halfway covenant. And to understand that, you need to really understand Stoddard's ministry in his life. He was engaged in ministry as a young man. He was administrating the Lord's Supper. And in the act of administrating it, and he had religious experience where, where he came to really fully understand and fully comprehend right, the work of Christ for the first time. He struggled with assurance before. But then at the Lord's Supper, his assurance problem was solved. One biographer describes Samuel Stoddard like this. He says, One Sabbath, as he was at the table administering the Lord's Supper, he had a new and wonderful revelation of the gospel theme scheme. He, he caught such a full and glorious view of Christ and his great love for men has shown his redemptive work that he was almost overpowered with emotion and with difficulty went forward with the communion service. 
And by reason of his peculiar experience of his, we were led to think the place he was led to think that the place where the soul was likely to receive spiritual light and understanding was at the Lord's table, that there, in a special manner, Christ would be present to reveal himself in all his fullness of love towards the souls of men. As a result of his experience, right, he pushed what's known as the halfway covenant, where those who'd, who'd grown up in church, perhaps, um, or not living a scandalous life, could receive communion as a means of grace, even if they themselves could not give a personal testimony of faith themselves. And, and Stoddard's hope was that, that people who liked church and, and, and liked coming and liked hearing things then would, would come to the Lord's table and had the same experience that he had. And so it was called the halfway covenant because people could take the Lord's Supper, they could have their children baptized, they could be part of the fellowship of the church, but without a personal testimony of saving faith, they would not be full members. They'd kind of like be half members, is what they're called. They couldn't vote in church matters, and there were certain meetings they could not attend. And so you had this church in Northampton that was, was, was filled kind of with, with some believers and some non-believers, but living mostly in peace and harmony. And this was true not only here in Northampton, but all up and down the coast. As you see these small villages and people with few church options and intellectual hub of the day were doing that. So when Edwards spoke about the number of people in his church, he said, quote, we have about 620 communicants. Talking about how many people would take the Lord's Supper. And of those 620 who took the Lord's Supper, a portion of them were full members and a portion of them were half members. So this church where Edwards was was filled with many non-Christians who, who tolerated the church life, liked the church life, were living moral lives, right, gladly accepting the fellowship of the church, but had no personal testimony of saving faith. And when the revival came to the church in 1730s, many of these people who knew the gospel intellectually and didn't really have a problem with it but never embraced it personally, many of these people came to, to faith in Christ, not the people on the street, not the people who never came into church, not the people who engaged in some gross sin, what we might say some gross external sin. And these were moral people in the church who were involved in the religious life of the church, simply didn't believe. And what we see in our text this morning is that very thing. We'll see the surprising conversions of religious people. In past weeks, we've looked at Manasseh and the woman at the well who were, who were examples of people who were like outside the people of God who are clearly wicked, defied the covenant, or a Samaritan, clearly outside. But this week, our surprising conversions are different. Here we see religious people, priests of all people, coming to the faith. And so here's our text, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In the context of the book of Acts, this verse comes right after the first major problem in the church. There were some widows who were being neglected in the daily servings of food, and, and people were complaining right, that, that, that some were getting more food than the others, and there was a problem because there were so many of the widows um, needing to be fed and needing to be cared for. And the obvious solution was for the apostles to stop their work and to step in and to help them. But they said in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, you can just even see it there, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Not that they weren't willing, it just wasn't their priority. They said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the people selected seven spirit-filled men 
would be capable of overseeing the work, and the apostles appointed them to the work. And that plan pleased the church. You can see right there in verse 5 what they said, pleased the whole gathering. Then it lists the people who they, they chose. And then verse 6, we got the apostles laying their hands on them, and things are going well. In fact, the first half of verse 7 shows how well things are going. It says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. See, when you read the book of Acts, it's a triumphal book. It's a story of the gospel progressing into the world from, from a few hundred followers of Jesus who were, who were scared. And uh, then Jesus appears to them there in the, the upper room. And, the, and then the Spirit comes down at the Pentecost. And then the church just explodes. And it goes out. And along the way, Luke gives these progress reports about the word of God was spreading and how the church was growing. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 is the first of these reports. Uh, turn over to Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. just want to give you a flavor of these, these reports that, that Luke gives. He says, 9.31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So you see the church growing and multiplying. Turn, turn over to Acts chapter 2, verse Acts chapter 12, verse 24. And these are the kind of verses I encourage you to, to even highlight in your Bible or put a box around in your Bibles because these are like the, 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 the progress reports, how the church is spreading. Acts 12, 24. The Word of God increased and multiplied. Acts chapter 16 and verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Acts chapter 19 and verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Like, like the same thing. The word of God was going forth. The, the time in Acts with, with, with the gospel going forth was much like the time in Northampton with Jonathan Edwards. It was a time of revival of the Spirit where it was going and progressing. And we see at the end of Acts, the very last two verses in Acts 28, it ends with a progress report. Not, not quite the last yet. Verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, says Paul, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. I mean, that's the book of Acts. Christ crucified, extending throughout the world and going in many, many people believing. So you just have a handful of disciples, 100 followers, and then eventually you have many, many, many more throughout the world. Uh, the, the theme verse of, of Acts is, is found in chapter 1 and verse 8, where Paul speaks about how you will be, or Luke speaks about, you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. And, and there it is, right? Jerusalem first, and then Judea, right, in the south, and Samaria um, in the north, and then the Gentiles. If we see it goes to Samaria, <clears throat> like it did with Cornelius in Acts 10, like we read today. <clears throat> on the western shore. Then it goes to Asia and Macedonia and eventually reaches to the ends of the earth. And, and it closed with Paul in Rome. And we're living today in Acts 29 when the church continues to progress all around the world. In the book of Acts, you see missionary journeys. You see churches planted. And you see all people, all sorts of people coming to faith in Christ, like the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter, chapter 8. Like the Apostle Paul in chapter 9, which we'll look at next week. Like Cornelius in chapter 10. Like Lydia in chapter 16. And the Philippian jailer as well in chapter 16. And here at the end of Acts chapter 6 verse 7, we see the surprising conversion 
of the Jewish priests, we read this, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Kind of like an afterthought. A great many. We have multitudes. A little bit like Edward's talking about. This is multitudes of, of hundreds coming into the church. These religious people coming into the church. And, and the way Luke says this in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, is almost like it's this afterthought. Kind of like right, the, the word of the Lord spreading greatly, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. And you can just go right past that. In, in fact, next year we hope to get into Acts and and uh, we'll be preaching through Acts. When we get to Acts chapter 6, verse 7, this will be just a kind of a, a small thought and we'll pass on our way. But I, I thought about just focusing our attention upon this last half of the verse and seeing what an amazing understatement that is. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It's a little bit like Genesis 1.16 where we read, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. It's, it's almost as if he, he said he, he made the sun to rule the day, the, the, rule, the moon to rule the night, and the stars also, as if making the sun and the moon were, were most impressive. But the stars, right, those little dots scattered out, were not, not so impressive. Yet the more we learn about the stars, the more we find out about astronomy, the more we wonder at the power of God. Amazing what investment we've made into astronomy and how much that has helped us to know about God. I love what the Hubble Telescope has taught us about the stars launched into orbit in 1990. <clears throat> it's as far above the earth. It's able to take pictures of the heavens without the effects of light pollution from the earth, without worrying about the rotation of the earth. It can, it can go out there still as can be. Five years after it was launched, scientists just wanted to say, you know what, I wonder what's in what are some of those most deepest, darkest parts of the sky and so what they did is they chose some of the deepest, darkest parts of the sky where the Hubble telescope could rotate around the earth and not lose sight of it. So for 24 hours a day, you kind of can kind of look there right upon that, that same spot and with its shutters of its cameras or its sensors open wide to getting any photons that would come in to be able to, to mass and pile up and understand the light from so far away, gathering any bits of wavelength that they could upon this little patch of, of dark sky. And what they saw, of course, maybe you've seen this before, they saw endless, endless galaxies. And, and if, and if the, the, the sensors were open for a longer time, they saw more and more of them. I love this picture because it shows that, that one is 11 days, that's kind of the density you see, but the one that's open for 23 days, that's what you see. <clears throat> more and more and more galaxies. It blew them away. They had no idea, scientists did, that the dark sky... <clears throat> would be so densely packed with stars and galaxies which were invisible to any telescope that we have here on earth the, the noise pollution is too much we can't see that from earth we need to get out in space where there, there's nothing where we can get that and to give you an idea how the, the size of that when they looked at the deep field images the, that's, that's not, it wasn't where the moon was but that's kind of the idea how the biggest size is that's less, less than 1% of the area of the moon and in less than 1%, scientists saw 5,500 galaxies. Just that little bit of the sky. And Genesis 1.16 says, He made the stars also. And in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7b, we read, And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
And my aim this morning is to you to try to give you, try to give you in a, in a similar sense of awe that a great many priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And I want to show you how surprising these conversions actually is, that you might be in awe of the power of God, that you might be encouraged in your own faith and strengthen your own evangelism, that God can work when he works. Now, what's difficult about this verse, when we think about these priests, is that I've never met a Jewish priest. And you have never met a Jewish priest. In fact, since AD 70, the temple was destroyed. There haven't been any Jewish priests that have been on the earth because there's no temple. It's like for 2,000 years, these people in their office have not existed because the temple is crucial to the life of the priest. Without an earthly temple, there's no need for earthly priests. So the closest we can get is a picture and a description of what the Jewish priests were like and the role they played in the life of Jewish people. Here's a artistic rendering perhaps of the high priest and all the the priests gathered up there doing their their priestly sort of service See, the jewish priests were established by god at mount sinai when god designated aaron and his descendants to serve as priests before god moses was a levite and so was of course his sons aaron was a, a, a levite and so all the the priests then had to be levites but only some of the levites were descendants from Aaron, there were rules and regulations about what it meant to become a priest. You had to be a man. You had to be a descendant from Aaron. To serve as a priest, you need to be between 30 and 50 years old. I'm already too old. I'd be done in my priestly service. You must be unblemished. That is not blind or lame or any type of, of mutilation or, on you. Even the scripture says you can't have an arm that's too long. You can't have a hunchback or be a dwarf or have a skin disease. You have to be pure to minister before the Lord is kind of the picture there. God said of him with a blemish, he said, he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish. Then he may not profane my sanctuaries for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Just the idea of a priest, you're going to come and represent the people to God. You need to bring a perfect, as much as you can, a perfect person. The duties of the priests were many. They were teachers of the law. They assessed the purity or impurity of the people. Skin diseases, house, mold, after childbirth, those sorts of things. They, they, they pronounced the blessings upon people. They blew the trumpets to, to lead the people in the processions. They served as judges when there was a controversy. Deuteronomy 21 verse 5 says, By the word of the judge, every, by the word of the priest, shall every dispute and every assault be settled. Fundamentally, the priests cared for and served the temple, though. This was their main area of care. They burned the incense. They kept the sacred fire burning day and night. They kept the lamps lit in the temple. They baked the showbread and kept it before the Lord at all times. And most importantly, they offered up the sacrifices. This is what you probably think of most. This is what you should think of most when you think of a priest. is to offer up the sacrifices. Two lambs every day. One in the morning and one in the evening. And on top of that, all the sacrifices that the people brought. You can read about that in Leviticus chapters 1 through 5. You go back and listen to my message. We preach through Leviticus. Five messages on those, those, those messages. The, the burnt offering and, and the grain offering and uh, the peace offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering. The priests would be those who take those animals or those, those meal offerings and they'd offer it up before the Lord. 
Sometimes the sacrifices came from the herd, like cows or bulls. And sometimes they came from the flock, like sheep or goats. Sometimes they were birds, like turtle doves and pigeons. And, and they took all of them and they sacrificed them and they burnt them before the Lord. Some of them they burnt holy. Some of them they burnt only apart. Some of them was for them for food. They offered up sacrifices not only just daily or when people come for their sins, they also offer up the sacrifices during the religious festivals, like on Passover or, or the Day of Atonement. And head over all these priests were the, the high priest, as you can even see in that picture there. He's dressed in a little bit different uh, clothes just to set him apart. And, and he was the one who was in charge of all the priestly activity. He spoke for all the priests, much like a CEO of a company would speak for everybody. He, he's setting the pace. He's leading the course, and the others would follow, of course. The high priest was the one who would enter the Holy of Holies in the temple during the, the Day of Atonement bringing the blood of the Lamb, offering a sacrifice for his sins and then for the sins of all the people that they committed that year. And his action was really symbolic of of all the actions of all the priests. The the high priest, as he would enter once a year, bringing the people to God, if you will, that's what the priests did all the time in their sacrifices. As they kept the temple in order and they called for the the festivals and offered up sacrifices and prayed for all the people. Like if you were a Jew during the days of Jesus, you had to go through a priest to be right with God. Priests were crucial in this matter. They were the doorkeepers, if you will. If you didn't go through a priest, you didn't have access to God. Because you had to bring a sacrifice. In order for a sacrifice to be accepted, it had to be accepted at the hands of a priest who would lay his hands on the sacrifice and pray for the sacrifice and then give it to the Lord as a soothing aroma. And that's why it's so surprising that, that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Because, if you might say for a, a point one, they, they had everything. And these priests had everything. They, they had power, they had prestige, they had privilege, they had standing, they had reputation, they had need. And for a priest to follow Jesus, it meant that he had to lose it all. He lost his job. I mean, your job as a priest is to bring people to God. People would would come to you, and and you would bring them to God. But all that changed with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus because Jesus was our sacrifice, and He is now our high priest, and we no longer need a priest to bring us to our true priest. We don't need earthly priests anymore because we have our heavenly high priest. He's the mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 There's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. And for the priest to trust in Christ meant that he had to trust that he's the mediator. And he had to give up all. He had to give up his life. He had to give up his job. He had to be a former priest. Because once a priest became obedient to the faith, he was a former priest. See, a priest had it pretty good. He played a crucial role in the life of Israel, was esteemed by the people, brought people to God, had, had job security. But coming to faith would, would change all of that. He'd no longer be the center of attention. People would no longer need to come to him. It would have taken a great amount of, of humility for a priest to come to faith because you give up all that you have. And the fact that a great many of the priests were willing to do this was surprising. I mean, if you just listen to the, the words of Jesus regarding what it means to follow, follow me, they really had to do this. You know, some people come to faith in Jesus, whatever, and they don't really give up all or you know, part of it. But Jesus says you have to give up all, and these priests did. Jesus said, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, or children, or brother, or sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear up his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and is not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king of war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Right? Therefore, right now Jesus is saying, just count the cost before you come to me. Therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Give it all. And these priests had everything, and they gave it all. The fact that a great many of these priests are willing to do this was surprising because it's not only they had, had everything, but they're also religious everything, right? They, they had everything with, with respect to God. And I, and I tell you, there's nobody more difficult to win than religious people who think they're good, who think they're right, who think they're okay. Oh, I got that. I'm okay, I'm good, I'm involved in this church, or I'm, I'm here, I, I do this. I love telling the story of my friend in high school and we played basketball together. He was two years younger than I was, so we played on the sophomore team when I was a, a senior, so we didn't really play on the same team. We scrimmaged, we, we weren't really good friends, but we knew each other. And his life in high school was far different than mine. I grew up in a, a stable, loving, church-attending family. My friend, on the other hand, grew up in a home filled with uh, problems. He turned to drugs. He told me, he said, Steve, I wasn't high on drugs all the time when I was in high school. Only when I was awake was high on drugs. He went to college and found Christ who forgave him all of his sins. He went on to seminary and uh, then went on to serve as a pastor. It's because he was a pastor then, he, he looked me up. This was about a decade ago. He looked me up and we reunited and have become genuine friends as a result. And I remember the time he came to our home for lunch. And uh, he said this, and this is why it's hard to, to win religious people. It's hard to win people of everything. He said, Steve, it's not a miracle that I became a Christian. My life was so messed up that I knew I needed help. So I searched. And where did I find help? I found help in Jesus. Jesus was my help. There's no miracle there. I knew I was messed up. But you, Steve, you needed a miracle because you had everything. You had an earthly family. You had parents who loved you, siblings who were loving and supportive, sufficient financial resources. In an earthly sense, you didn't need Jesus. You had no reason even to search for Him. It's a miracle that you recognized your need for a Savior and bowed the knee to Him. See, because it's the righteous who need a miracle. And, and in fact, I remember talking with SR about this whole sermon series, this surprising conversion. He's like, Dad, every conversion is surprising. Whether it's religious or non-religious or, or wicked and evil or wherever you are, every conversion is surprising. And it's especially true of those of everything. That's why it's so difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus said it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He might as well put a camel through the eye of a needle. Why? Because he got everything. And that's why evangelism is so difficult in America. From an earthly perspective, we have everything we need. We don't need a Savior. We have great infrastructure of our, our country. We have great education. We have great opportunities. People of the world are coming here because we have opportunities. But you go to poor, impoverished countries where the infrastructure is not quite the same and the poverty and uh, the lack of support from the government for, 
for equity and justice is not there. It's a different matter. They don't have anything. The country has left them down. The people have left them down. They're in a difficult situation and they need help. They know they need help. And the gospel flourishes in those lands. The Jewish priests had everything. They had a religious system provided for their earthly needs. They had a reputation of standing among the people, help them feel good about themselves, or filling a great purpose in life, bringing people to God. And that's why it's so surprising that they were converted, because they had everything. Well, the second reason why their conversion is so surprising is because they were, were corrupt. And, and, and of course, right, through the ages, there, there have always been good priests and bad priests. You just think about the corrupt priests. Um, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were corrupt. They offered up strange fire before the Lord, and the Lord consumed them. Uh, Nadab and Abihu were a lot like Adam and Eve, set in a perfect environment. Adam and Eve sinned and went their own way. Nadab and Abihu, the first two priests, did it wrong. They were careless. They didn't realize. So Aaron's other sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, came and took their place. There were other priests like Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, treated the offerings with contempt. God had them die in battle. Of course, then Samuel comes along, a, a good priest. You know, religion is just ripe for corruption. Um, and, and the priests are no, no different. In Malachi chapter 2, we just get the testimony, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 2, says the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and the people should seek instruction from his mouth for he's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you priests have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased among all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. Even the times of Malachi, they're corrupt priests then. And what was true in the past was certainly true of Jesus' day. I mean, if there's anything wrong with the Jewish sacrificial system, it was this, that it was corrupt. That God set this great system where people come and bring their animals, sacrifice a pleasing aroma, then they're made right with the Lord. But in the days of Jesus, right, you think about people needed to bring their sacrifice to the Lord. There's only one place to do that. It's Jerusalem. And so people would travel great lengths in order to get to Jerusalem. And since travel is long and hard, they came up with a system. People didn't need to bring their animals from home. They could purchase their animals just right outside the gate, right outside the temple. And so they had, think about it, the benefits of this, right? These animals would be acceptable. The priests approved them so they wouldn't have to spend time checking over them to make sure that they were unblemished because they only sell unblemished animals, approved for sacrifice. So on the one hand, it's a great system. It's convenient for travels. I mean, can you imagine taking a goat on a plane to, to go over to Jerusalem? You can't do that, right? And similarly, right, if they're, if they're in Rome coming down or they're, they're in um, a city in Antioch and they're coming down or, or other islands, right, taking these animals on these boats in order to go over, it, it's just difficult. So it's convenient for travelers. They just need to have money for the journey. It's convenient for the priests. They don't have to take time to inspect every animal offered on the altar. But the problem was it's corrupt. It's big business, no longer served the people as a service to help them. It served the priests to make a large profit. And like concessions in a ballpark, right? The worshipers are being gouged in the pocketbooks. Pigeons that cost 10 shekels were being sold for 100. And, and lambs that cost 100 shekels were sold for 1,000. 
And bulls that cost a thousand shekels were sold for ten thousand. And all that money's going into the priest's pockets. Sounds like some other priests as well in our day and age. That sounds like the priest of Luther's day. As soon as the coin and the copper rings, the soul from Purgatory Springs wants the money. The entire system was corrupt. The priests are fully in on the gig. I mean, they could have stopped it instantly. They said, no, 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 this system is bad. No, we're just not going to accept those animals. Or we're going to only, you can only get from these people. Or They could have corrected it, but they didn't. And so corrupt it was that, that the one thing that made Jesus furious was this. I mean, he was saddened by the unrepentance of, of Israel. He cursed the religious leaders right, of the day because of their hypocrisy. But nothing elicited the emotional response from Jesus as did the corruption of the religious priests. Listen to John chapter 2, 13 to 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. And the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So just picture it, worshipers all around. Hundreds, if not thousands of people thronging in this place. Many animals, equal animals as well. Thousand animals, hundreds of animals. And one man with his emotional rage was able to drive them all out. Because it becomes so corrupt. And these are the ones who followed in obedience of the faith. These corrupt, religious, pious priests. Well, maybe one last thing of why it makes this conversion of these priests so surprising is because they were the persecutors. I mean, you think about why is it that Jesus was delivered up? It's because of the people, it's because of the Pharisees, but the priests had their hands in it, particularly the high priests. It speaks in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 57 about how Caiaphas was the high priest who was presiding over the trial of Jesus. And he was trying to get witnesses, and he was only get false witnesses. Until finally someone said, hey, Jesus said, I'm able to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. He said, ah, do you have an answer to make? This, this one little, little, little thing, right? And this went back and forth, back and forth. Are you the son of man? Well, you said so. Oh, listen to that blasphemy. It was the high priest, one of these priests that should preserve knowledge and, and teach, became the main persecutor of Jesus. And all the priests were under that. Now, certainly there were good priests under that. There were bad priests. But many priests were, were part of that system as they continued to offer up their, their sacrifices. And what began with the high priest in condemning the death of Jesus continued on with the apostles. Now, turn back. You're in Acts chapter 6. Turn back to Acts chapter 4. And, and look there. We, we see there that, that Peter and John had healed this man who was, who was lame and crippled. And, and then he, he was speaking to the people. Peter and John were. Chapter 4, verse 1, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Here we see the, the priests 
coming upon Peter for what he was doing. And they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And maybe these priests had this motive that, that if you continue to do that, I'm going to lose my job. If people follow after you, it's not going to be right. They're losing power. And they arrested them, verse 3, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Though many, many did believe. And then we read in chapter 4 and verse 6 about Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander were all there with the high priestly family. These were descendants from Moses, descendants from Aaron. The high priests were right there and they presided over this, this trial. And, and basically, Peter gives his defense and says, basically, if we're on trial today, we're being examined because of a good deed done to a crippled man, but what means he's been healed, let it be known to you. That, that Jesus, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, but has become the cornerstone. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And he basically preached the gospel to these priests and these Sadducees and these elders and these Pharisees and the high priests. And basically they, they beat them, charged them no more to speak in the name of Jesus. And you get down, they were released. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends, reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They said, just stop speaking. And the persecution continued over in chapter 5 and verse 17 about how, how the high priest arose and all who were with him, that's the party of the Pharisees, filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles again. They said, we told you not to preach. And they said, well, we can't. We must obey God rather than men. And so again, they, they beat him. And the disciples, the apostles went out. Verse 41 of chapter 5. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And who was instigating the suffering for the name of Jesus? It was the high priest. And it was the priests. They were the persecutors. And it comes down here. The very ones who are persecuting came to faith. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, not all of them, because we'll see back in, later in chapter 9, we'll see that uh, if you read on, you can. Chapter 9 and verse 14, when the, um, Saul is going out persecuting, he had letters from the high priests. He, he had letters from the, the priests, religious authority, to arrest Christians and bring them back. But here in chapter seven, chapter six and verse seven, we see many of the priests becoming obedient to the faith. And it's just surprising that God was, was working in that way to bring many of these religious people who had everything and who were corrupt and who were the very ones against God. God was turning them and transforming their hearts so that many of them came to faith in Christ. And I, I love how it describes coming to faith. It says they became obedient to the faith. That is, they obeyed the faith. This is what Paul was striving for in, in Romans. You begin at the beginning of Romans. It says he was an apostle seeking for the obedience of faith. That is, faith that not only says he believes in God, but actually walks it out and carries it out, demonstrates by what is done. That faith is genuine. And there are many priests here. And thus it is surprising conversions that we have of these many priests. Well, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these stories in the Bible that can so encourage us that people who are far off have been brought near. God, and be that people who are religious or not, 
whether like Manasseh or the, the woman at the well who had no religious bearing. God, you, you saved them. Or people who knew all about the law and who knew everything, but it was going to cost them everything to believe and trust. God, you saved them. And so, God, I just would pray for people in this room. Maybe it costs them a lot to believe and trust in Jesus. Maybe it costs a reputation in the family. Maybe it costs a promotion. Maybe it, maybe it costs with being mocked or ridiculed. I pray, God, that you would, God, help to overcome those things. God, that, that for those here in this room who aren't concerned about their souls, may they think about their own death like these young Man, this young man, this young woman who died in Northampton. So stir among us, oh God, I pray, for people that genuinely come to you. And I pray also, God, you'd encourage us in our evangelism, God, in our speaking to others of Jesus. Stephen would pray, Vacation Bible Schools tomorrow, we have an opportunity to invite maybe neighbors or friends, offer to bring them here. I, just, I know um, that's on my heart to speak with our neighbors across the street today. See if they are coming uh, to Vacation Bible School with their kids. As we invited some kids from the neighborhood on Friday. Um, God, just to, just to see and hear about Jesus and, and who He is. And so, Lord, would pray that You would stir us with that heart and, and realize that the people we might think are far away and far gone and have no hope. God, realize that in You they have hope. And their life can be transformed, not only bettered in this life, God, but also bettered in the life to come. And so God would pray you'd you'd encourage us with these stories, stir our hearts to be more faithful witnesses for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.